Welcome to Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybal Education. I'm Pete Wright, and today we bring you two fantastic leaders in the higher education change space. Carol Mullaney serves as Senior Director for the Offices of Sustainability and Continuous Improvement and is President-Elect for the Network for Change and Continuous Innovation, NCCI. Brent Rubin is Director of the Rutgers Leadership Academy and faculty member at the Robert Wood Johnson School of Medicine and the Graduate School of Education at Rutgers University. His years of contribution have yielded more than 50 books and 200 journal articles and book chapters in the higher education change space. Carol and Brent join Howard Teibel this week for a conversation on change and provocation and the evolving macro conversation that comes as we learn to lead change in higher education. This comes as we prepare for the NCCI 20th Annual Conference in Denver, Colorado, Moving Mountains, Cultivating Change in Higher Education. Get this on your calendar for this summer, July 10th through 12th. Registration is now open. And now I hand it off to Howard as he has his conversation with the wonderful Carol Mullaney and Brent Rubin. Well, thank you, Pete. Carol and Brent, thank you for being on the show. It's so exciting to have both of you on here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Yep. Pleasure. So in July, Carol, Moving Mountains, Cultivating Change in Higher Education. Uh, you are the president-elect of NCCI, and you've got this exciting conference on change. Can you share a little bit about with our listeners what is going to be happening at this conference? Sure, I would love to. Uh, we have an annual conference. It's, it's uh, probably uh, the best thing we do. We have a number of different programs out of NCCI, but our annual conference is truly special. Um, this year, we will be meeting in Denver, Colorado, thus the title of the yes. conference for Moving Mountains. Uh, we try to be thematic when we can. Uh, the dates are July 10th to 12th. And what we do at this conference, it is um, wonderful because it is sized in a way that you can meet just about everyone who's there. Last year, we had about 255 people at our conference. We expect a little bit higher enrollment, but still it's, it's a nice manageable size. Um, and conference attendees include individuals from both the academic and administrative sides of colleges and universities throughout not only the United States and the rest of North America, but also with representation from um, other countries um, as well. I think this will be our very best conference yet. Um, we have um, Tim Creasy from ProSci Change Management, who is going to serve as our keynote speaker. We have a variety of workshops and plenary sessions. We have some pre-conference workshops. And they, it's an amazing collection of like-minded people who are very generous in sharing what they're doing well, what challenges they're facing, uh, working together collaboratively to, to um kind of try to come up with some ways to address the issues uh, that we're all facing. Um, our track line, we have four um, kind of track lines of the type of programming that we have. Uh, the first is in strategy. The second is in leadership development and engagement. The third is in process improvement. And the fourth is in navigating change. I love it. You know, the what you said at the beginning when you started describing the conference to me is the most important thing because I've, I've done lots of work at, with, with associations. And too often, we're just speaking to ourselves. And when you said we've got academics and administrators there, right? That is such a key thing is that we need to bring 
these groups together to learn that not only do we speak a different language, but that we have different concerns. You know, and, and Brent, you know, your, your history in this space of, of uh, change and higher education is, uh, is a phenomenal story. And, and what I'd love to hear from you, uh, first of all, when you look forward, we're going to talk about looking back and some of the origins of NCCI, but when you look forward at where we are and, and, and what, what, what's emerging as some recent change issues, what are you seeing in the conversations that people are having today at Rutgers and also outside of Rutgers? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. I think that uh, kind of this this event has been an occasion for me to look back a little bit and think about the the uh, evolution of things. And I think um, that really many of the same themes that have always been around are increasingly important today. But that there is a much more of a macro approach. And I think the work of NCCI and people in similar spaces that um, that engage a lot of the NCCI type of people playing an increasingly central role on our campuses. And whereas, and I can talk a bit about this in a minute, but whereas initially it was about quality teams and fixing administrative processes in a pretty micro space, I think that's one of the things that's changed dramatically over the years and I think will continue to to change. Can can we go back in time now, Brent? Can we do do a little time travel? Sure. So, you know, let's let's go back to... uh, pre-NCCI days, right? And, and basically, um, you know, we were talking a little bit in, in the workup for, in the, in the preparation for this meeting about, you know, what was it like then? And basically, I think there were a handful of people uh, from Penn State, Wisconsin, Rutgers, uh, Cornell, uh, Missouri. And interestingly enough, each of those people had very different jobs. Uh, I was directing PhD program. There was someone who was the head of administrative services someone at one of those schools that was in, in charge of budgeting, someone else in the faculty of HR. And at each, each of those institutions, those people were sort of tapped to lead an initiative at their school that would try to bring change, you know, to, to the institution. What year was this, approximately? Well, you're talking about like the, the late 80s, the mid, mid early 90s, and, and so on. And, you know, thinking back about what were the issues then, there were a number of national conferences of presidents were involved in. The Kellogg Commission was one. And they started to identify a, a few central issues. Of course, one was not uh, an unfamiliar notion that it costs too much. Uh, questions about the efficiency of, of higher ed. Uh, questions about critique by various constituents. Again, not a new idea. Um, questions about the, the, the service orientation. You know, do we did we then care much about or care enough anyway about students and visitors and parents, or were we a bit too preoccupied on the provider side of things? And, and then also issues of benchmarking. And more generally, could we learn anything from particularly corporate America? And so I think it was, it was basically then in the, in, in the late 80s, mid-90s, where there started to be a, a move to thinking about, well, let's look at what, what the better corporations are doing. And, you know, you had AT&T's and you had Ford and you had Johnson Johnson, which is here in New Brunswick. And they were all moving very, very uh, dramatically in the area of quality improvement, as it was called then. And so it was process improvement. It was quality circles. It was partnerships, benchmarking, and a really big piece then, and I think continues to be in our work here and in certain other places, is the Baldrige framework, which was a, you know, a macro level thinking about what leaders need to be doing. 
So, you know, Carol, at, at that point, uh, NCCI didn't exist, right? There was no, the, it, it, what, what was the, when did, what was the first date that NCCI showed up? What year do you, do you recall? So, and, and I was um, in the corporate world at that point in time. So I'll defer to Brent, who, who was uh, one of our founders. But 1999 is the year that we hold as the founding. So this actually is our 20th anniversary oh, uh, of the organization. And we'll be celebrating that um, at our conference. So what was it like for you, Carol, coming from corporate into higher education? Do you, do you remember that transition? Because <laughs> right, when I when I ask people to explore that question, it's often a, a culture shock. You know how decisions get made, uh, the the ambiguity around uh, what we're trying to accomplish, the different stakeholders who have a different voice. Some think they have a voice, some think they should have a voice, um, and trying to get things done. So. So when you when you join higher ed from the corporate space and you're clearly your your mindset, my guess, at, even at that time was around how do we implement uh, change? What were some of the early obstacles you were discovering that that today almost seem like everyone's familiar with it, but then it was new, like how to have these conversations? Sure. So as Brent referenced, you know, as, as he and his colleagues um, were looking, and, and I do think, you know, as, as you look at Brent, who has such a distinguished background and an academic, you know, um, even this call. Can we, can, can, can we just say that Brent is the man? Brent is definitely the man. Okay, good. Um, All right. That's what I just said. You know, and I'm, I'm honored to be included. Me too. I, I come at this more from a practitioner standpoint. Yes, so, yes. Um, I was hired at the University of Notre Dame um, after they had done what Brent referred to. They went out to look at what should we do in this space and benchmarked against, first of all, a couple of top universities um, you know, like Rutgers and Penn State and Wisconsin, but also looked outside of higher ed and visited some other large companies um, that had programs in place. Um, and and so do, we, you know what's interesting? Doing that then... Uh, those who were pra- practicing this was uh, an important thing to do. But the academic side of the house, early on, my experiences, is they looked at conversations brought from the corporate world as being antithetical to what their mission was and, and didn't see, for the most part, that there was value in looking outside of the higher ed space. Mm-hmm. And I, I, have- I, I think that's shifting. But is that, was that not your experience? That was my experience. Yeah. I recall in the myriad of interviews uh, that I participated in um, during the selection process, uh, probably almost every single person said to me, well, you know, we don't want to be too corporate. Um, we, uh, we are different than a corporation. Um, and that, that is true. Uh, my experience, I've, I have been in higher ed now uh, nine years. Um, but I do have to say there are many similarities. Uh, uh, You know, people are the same. Um, A lot of the management structures are the same. I think one thing that is very different is terminology. Um, And that's something we had to be very cognizant of 
and uh, think about clearly as we were we were moving forward with our programs within the university. And, and to me, the reason that, and you tell me if you agree with this, both of you, that the reason the terminology difference is important because if you didn't learn to speak the language of higher ed, you couldn't build trust with the constituents. They could see very quickly whether you were bringing in a corporate mindset or a um, or a mission-based higher education. This is not about making money. This is, this is about uh, some a grand vision and 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 what's interesting that I'm curious about when you think about this Brent let me come back to you now how has the conversation shifted when you are with your academic colleagues uh, around looking at corporations has is there greater receptivity in a broader sense that we can learn from corporations and bring that to the academy has that moved it's moved some, but you know, I, I'm I don't think it's moved as much as it needs to move on the academic side. I think going I completely agree with Carol on it's my own discipline, it's communication. So I was tuned into those things from the beginning and, and finding that most all the words of the quality uh, movement, including the word quality, uh, were problematic, particularly on the academic side. You know, the, the response to we're starting a quality program is, well, wait a second, Rutgers, for example, was founded at in 70, 1766, what the hell do you think we've been doing? <laughs> right. That, you know? right. Okay, so you had that. So yeah. The word quality was a problem. The word customer was a problem. Right. Uh, for everybody initially, still a problem, my, uh, my sense is, on the academic side, many places, as it was in healthcare and still is in some ways. Uh, the word deployment, which is a Baldrige word, that, that was a problem because that's a military term. Um, and process is a problem because what is a process anyway? We know about programs, we know about services, assessment, that's a problem. So, so the issue was how do you uh, translate what are generically relevant concepts into the vernacular and the culture of, of higher ed? And one thing I, I, I want to add here, and then, um, and then I'll pause and be interested to hear, hear Carol's thoughts about this. If you weren't careful, and you adopted the easy route, which was to work only on the administrative side with terms that they were okay with, because they were less troubled by a word like customer. For example, procurement or finance, it was not a difficult word, but but the word leaked out that you had a program that was a business program, if only appealed to the administrative side, and you didn't have the credibility to make an inroad in the on the academic side. And so for us, the transition little by little has been from mostly doing things on the administrative side to doing most of our work now on the academic side. It's not been really a very easy transition. Yeah. What, what's, your, what's been your experience, how this has evolved, Carol? I think the same for us. We, we as Brent mentioned, we started with uh, work on the administrative side. Um, we needed to build credibility. We needed to build relationships. We needed for people to trust that we weren't about slashing headcount. We weren't uh, about, um, you know, telling them what they had to do, um, but more about um, kind of building knowledge and competence across campus and involving people in, um, in the ultimate goals. Um, from a project standpoint. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. We could we could take some of the language used then and some of the challenges, and we're still facing them in a different way. I also think the difference is partially is there's a new generation that's upcoming, right? And this new generation of academic administrators, 
are recognizing the cultural challenges. And I think, so for example, most recently, you know, I'm out here in Colorado myself, and there was a time when as you moved west, if things were happening in the east, people were paying attention. But with some of the closures of the universities on the east coast, Vermont, some of the mergers, major mergers that are that are happening, I think there's a greater awareness across the board that we need to think differently about not just the business model, because I think that's too limited. It's almost like, what's the academic model? How do we want to evolve? And the challenge here is that every institution is different. They have different pressure points and they have different concerns. There are different parts of the region. So this has been an ongoing challenge, it seems, is to find a way to have a macro conversation around change, but also recognizing that every institution has its own unique way and willingness and leadership to take it in a, in a certain direction. So, so I'm, I'm curious, when you think about attacking some of these problems right now, for, through NCCI, what are, some of the, what are some of the areas that you see has evolved? So we talked a little bit in advance, and I think this is really interesting. What has changed and what has not changed? since, you know, the last 20 years, how have you seen it evolve in terms of, you know what, we're still living in this world. It could have been, it could be 20 years ago. And in other areas, we really have evolved. So Brent, what, where, where are you seeing the difference? Well, I think one of the, one of the biggest changes has been, uh, for us anyway, and, and I see it at other schools that I'm asked to go to, is a recognition of the importance of leadership as a part of this. In other words, you can take various tools that have been popular over the years, whether it's lean or process improvement or re-engineering or whatever. Uh, and you, you can run one of those programs or plan an intervention. If you don't have a leadership understanding, leadership support, it goes nowhere. Mm. And I, I mean, maybe that's a bit of an overstatement, but let's just say it's not sustainable. So well, you know what it is? It gets stopped when when the politics start playing out, when people yeah. start putting pressure because the leaders... In those moments when the academy or administrator is coming, we can't do that, or people start playing territory. Yeah, that's and, where and, the leader has to show up differently. And I, I'll be, you know, uh, uh, provocative and say I don't think we have a tradition of extremely great leadership in higher education in general. So I, say I, more I, about that. What what's okay. what element of leadership would you say is missing? This is important well, think, for our listeners as well as yours. I think one of the things, and I talk about this a lot with groups that I meet with. We've tr- traditionally looked for content and disciplinary expertise when we've hired leaders, whether it's in a deanship or even on the administrative side. We're looking at how strong these people are in a quasi-academic way, either in their field or they were a star in a technical area. And we've really missed the fact that while those may be necessary conditions to be a good leader, the, the things which make the difference are really cross-cutting skills, communication, personal competencies, organizational competencies, analytical competencies. And, you know, when I look at the Dean search committees I'm on or other committees I'm on, there's not enough, there's not enough attention paid to figuring out whether the person has those cross-cutting leadership skills in addition to being a, a leader in their field and so on. I don't think we're as advanced as industry in knowing what those things are, nor have, we're just starting to study what those factors are. We also don't have the assessment center technology yeah. and methodologies that a lot of corporations have had for a long time. It, it's almost accidental, or you're lucky, 
if you show up with a group of senior leaders in your institution for that period of time while they're, while they're in those roles, that they can actually move the needle. What's been your experience? Because, you know, Carol, you have the optics uh, as being a leader at NCCI, but also within uh, your institution to see this question of leadership evolve. How have you seen uh, the strengths and weaknesses around this leadership question? So I... Um I mean, we've been blessed, at least at the university where I am. I, I have um, tremendous respect for our executive leadership. Um, but I have seen within NCCI um, and, and here at our institution, at least a growing recognition of the need for good leadership and for leadership development. Um, I, I see that in uh, kind of at middle management levels, if you will, uh, within higher ed and what we're looking to do. Many universities have started new programs, um, and, and many of them have programs, leadership development programs that combine academic and administrative leaders in the same cohorts. They're going through the same type of leadership development. And I think that's really exciting um, for the future. I think there's probably a lot of room for growth in that area, but but at least I, I do see new programs developing across um, a wide swath um, of All right. different so, so, You know, so we have people listening to this that are asking themselves, what kind of leader am I, right? All of us are asking that all the time. So what would you say is a leadership competency that really is needed more of or is missing uh, that you would say if you were talking to anybody, if you're going to move the needle on an initiative on the academic or administrative side, here is one or a couple of leadership competencies specifically that you should be cultivating in yourself. What comes to mind, Brent? I'll mention a couple. I think one one is sort of a, a spinoff of what used to be called customer focus in the quality movement, and it's really stakeholder analysis. And I would combine that with perspective taking. These are dimensions of communication, as they're often talked about. But when you sit and, and analyze a problem uh, as an as an executive or an administrator at any level, thinking about how this will play with all the constituencies that you have, how they'll each feel about it. And kind of doing the cost-benefit analysis, both in whether you want to do this thing you're thinking about, but even uh, secondarily, how you're going to communicate and talk about this thing. You know, so whether it's selling beer at, 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 in sports events, which we just decided to do that, okay, or whether it's to how much to fund athletics, or is it to bring in this or that new platform that will, a su- instructional support platform that causes a lot of change in faculty members' lives. To, to only think about it in terms of, well, it will advance the institution in the abstract, that's a good thing, place to start. But, but the change management piece or the leadership piece that goes with that is, how will the different groups react and how do I need to engage them in making the decision, in playing this thing out? And that's just kind of one area, I think, where leadership uh, is sometimes lacking. And I want to just build on this one minute because as I work, talk to academic leaders, and medical leaders, they're quick to point out that my critique, they agree with the critique that they weren't really trained in leadership. You know, I think of a couple different senior leaders in the medical school say that the first time they've ever had anything about communication other than, let's say, communication, communication with patients or anything about even thinking about organizational dynamics was in programs we've run for them. 
and I think faculty, again, you know, unless you're in a, in a behavioral science discipline, you could have gone all the way through uh, your field and be very accomplished in that field, that discipline, and never have had any course or structure where you thought about managing people or coordinating people. Yes, or, or, or mobilizing people Yeah, all this to so, take actions. So I, I just, one more comment. So I think it's very true that all smart people can become leaders, which I think is a philosophy that permeated higher ed for a long time. Pick a smart person, they'll be able to be a good leader. Eventually, probably true. But that learning curve can be very difficult for them, and it can be difficult for their colleagues as they watch the mistakes. So to Carol's point, I think trying to organize programs that equip people with things that, in a way, they never had a chance to learn earlier on is one of the key things that we all can do. And I think it's part of the future of the work that NCCI types. Right. And the some of the learning that NCCI can be providing to, to future leaders. Carol, what about you? What's, when you think about just, when you imagine a leader where you say, that's a certain competency we need to see more of, uh, what is that competency you'd like to see more in people leading change efforts? And I, I would agree with Brent. And I do think um, leading change and doing it more quickly is probably uh, something, you know, when you asked me previously what uh, maybe one of the adjustments uh, was that I faced moving from a corporate world to higher ed, um, I think it's the speed with which we operate. You know, people use uh, analogies like the Titanic and um, other things like that. Things happen more slowly in higher education than they do in a for-profit world. And I think, but I think we're seeing the need for things to be done more quickly, the need for resiliency, the need, you know, um, to have a vision and then to act on it more quickly. Um, and so I think that you know, at least within NCCI, as we, we look at change management and equipping people with knowledge and skills and tools to be able to do that, I think part of it is, is to try to help leaders in higher education act more quickly. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that issue of speed is, is fascinating. And, and I think part of this is, is, you know, the willingness that you may have to piss off some people. Or let's make it even less, you know, dramatic that not everybody is going to be happy with, you, with your decision. And I think that what I've seen lots of leaders suffer from is trying to satisfy every constituent. And if you're going to move something forward, matter of fact, what I've said once to a college president is the reason you know that what you're doing is working is you've pissed off a bunch of people. Seriously, that, that there's a place. Now, I'm exaggerating a bit, Brent, yeah. but I think there's a place where if you're not provoking people, it, in a sense, you're waking them up. One of the moods they might be woken up into from complacency is a mood of, of frustration or even being angry. Why are you doing this? This is the way we've always done it. And I think this is the challenge we face when we're trying to create speed is we yeah. have to do things that get people out of complacency. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. But the only thing I would want to add is I don't think you can please everybody, but you can engage everybody. Yes. I think the process of, of helping people understand why you're doing this new thing is often overlooked. And I think that goes a long ways toward creating receptivity. And, and moreover, it's my observation, particularly on the academic side, that there's never been a good idea that I didn't get a chance to talk about. So that if you want to have support, even if you're not going to get to make a decision that people agree with. If you allow them input, 
the chances of their accepting that is a lot greater. You'll Sometimes people lost, just want to be heard. Term, but yes, you know, I, I think particularly on the academic side, people can't support things if they haven't had a chance to weigh in. And it, it shouldn't be that way, perhaps, but that's, that's my discovery. So, so I want to talk about something else uh, we talked about in advance. Um, higher ed institutions are like many institutions that are complex are political. There's an element of the work of the, of the nature of the way we operate. And what I mean by political is that there's constituencies that have power and there's constituencies that exercise power. And part of the power lives in sort of where you sit. So one of the things that that we're seeing more of, and you mentioned this, Brent, and I think this is a really interesting insight, is that we're seeing more chief diversity officers showing up at the cabinet senior team level. And we all can, we all understand why. You know, if you read the Chronicle, you can see that front and center diversity is is not just a hot topic, it's a relevant topic that has been ignored for many years. So now we're finding that we are we are putting those conversations in a place where they can be discussed at the senior level. But I rarely see at the senior level people that play a change role. They often find themselves sometimes a couple of layers down, buried in HR, or they live in an area where they don't have that influence. So would you agree that we need to find a way better to move some of these roles into more senior positions that are going to be focused on change, not the discipline, not just the facilities person or student affairs. All of those are important uh, uh, layers or, or pieces of a higher ed um, sort of the, the structure. But we don't have change leaders at the top and, and that, that have that as their primary focus. Do you see that as a possible future movement or do you already see it happening? What's, what's both of your experience? Well, I, I'm of two minds on this. You know, one, one part of me says there was a time when people thought we need quality officers, you know, on the cabinet. And some corporations had that. J&J had that. AT&T had that. AT&T had thousands of quality people. And that, that was their job designation. And over time, what has happened in, in those leading corporations, and I know J&J perhaps best, is those concepts have become everybody's job. And I think in a level of maturity is one where, whether it's diversity or quality, it's not seen as one person's job, uh, but it may need to be one person's job in a transitional period, but eventually it's part of the culture that everybody takes ownership of. That said, I think we're really not there yet with diversity, nor are we there yet with concepts like change or leadership development or, or strategic planning. So I think on the road to that, then what you have to do is find ways to capitalize on public interest and the public recognition in the importance of the thing you do. And it, and communication, now you find communication people on many of the, many of the top-level administrations. That wasn't always the case. But communication became something everybody thought was a problem and something everybody thought was a solution. And I think that's happening with leadership now. It's, a list, it's on everybody's list of what's wrong, and it's on everybody's list of what could be better. And change might be another one of those, okay? So I do think that the time is actually right for people to leverage the interest that's, that's in the stakeholder community that, and boards and so on to, uh, to make clear what we have to contribute. It, the, you have to go beyond saying we do this thing. You have to be able to demonstrate 
the value you can bring, I think, relative to that thing. So what I'm hearing you say, and I'm going to hear what you think, Carol, I'm hearing you say that maybe initially, as part of the maturity model around this, is that we need someone dedicated to be able to bring that understanding. But over time, it needs to become everyone's responsibility, right? Uh, diversity is everyone's responsibility, but at the same time, there are people that really understand the nature of those issues in a deep way, and having them at the top can help inform people to be more sort of cognizant, and then we can step back, but we're not there yet. What's your sense of that, Carol? So I, I think it's interesting, and I agree with what Brent has said. We in NCCI have collected information from our members. And um, one of the beautiful things about NCCI is that we have people from a broad umbrella of different functional areas within a university. Um, and so if you come to our conference, you'll meet people who are in, who have titles of strategic planning or continuous improvement or change management, but you'll also meet people from the provost's office, from IT and uh, finance and HR, but they have as part of their role um, a, a, a responsibility to lead change in some way. So... Um, I've seen in the variety of universities that that are part of our membership different models, and I think they can work. You know, whether or not you have um, executive leadership that has a commitment to this and therefore utilizes, um, you know, some functional expertise, but also builds knowledge and builds um, kind of a culture of of change management, of improvement. Um, I've seen that work. I've also seen, you know, leaders who have that particular functional title and they, they drive change that way. Um, nice. Add, let me please, go ahead. Thing. I think one of the strengths of NCCI has always been the point that, that Carol's speaking to, that it, it has had a sort of a mosaic of different kind of members from different kind of roles and positions in the university. And because of that, when you, when you leave uh, a conference or you leave an NCCI webinar or whatever, it puts you in a place to be able to talk to your, on your campus about other ways of doing things. And so if you're, if you're in, let's say, an administrative area and you're trying to argue for the importance of planning or leadership or whatever, you can talk to the, the people at your institution about how there are a number of institutions that have identified this as a central role that is serving everyone in the institution. That turns people's heads. And by the same token, if you're in an uh, institution that has that central role, but those that work hasn't permeated out to the academic units or to procurement or to the foundation or whatever, then you can leverage your knowledge that you've gained about those things from NCCI to also push back. And so I think it really equips you to be a, a change agent yourself, I guess. Yeah, yeah. What I love about what you're saying, and it's reminding, because having been to lots of different associations, every association you go to now in higher ed has a, has a track around change. The difference here is this is the focus. So everything you're going to come to, if you come to this conference, whatever role you play in higher education, uh, you're going to learn something about change at a deeper way. And, and there's no association, in my experience, that, that has that singular, dedicated, deep focus than NCCI. So I think that is a, that's a really important thing. And, and it's why it's important to grow this is that and for people to take the time. So who are some of the, you talked a little earlier. So what are some of the 
people you're going to see there role-wise. Obviously, you'll have change agents or people that play change roles in their institution. But you will also see academics, like you said, Carol, too, right? You'll see, you'll see directors. You'll, you'll see vice presidents. Uh, how is that? Are you seeing over time that that's shifting, that more people who play more traditional roles in higher education are beginning to see the value of being an NCCI? I do. I, I see. Um, so, so a value of NCCI is that it's an institutional membership. And so um, university would join and then anyone who is employed at that university, faculty or staff, can be connected, can be on the mailing list, can uh, receive member benefits. And um, we have many universities that send multiple people uh, to the conference. And uh, what's interesting, for example, from my university, we've had individuals from our continuous improvement office, our strategic planning, our uh, human resources, our um, information technology teams, from others. We've had uh, uh, individuals from provost's office, chancellor's office. Um, so it's it's very exciting. The other thing is that um, any institution within higher education can be a member. So part of the value, too, is, is the, the generous sharing of experiences that we realize from people across different types of institutions. I think um, within higher ed, at least this is my experience, we tend to benchmark against what we consider peer universities. Right. Um, but sometimes there's great value in looking outside of that, that traditional peer benchmarking set as well. Yes. And sharing information with community colleges. That's right. You know, because some of them might be moving a lot faster in terms mm -hmm. of a certain, a, a certain competency or discipline that if you're uh, a, uh, you know, a research institution, ultimately you could put something in place in a particular division and learn it from another type of institution, without question. Um, it's, also, it's also the case that the the, the so-called top-tier institutions, the AAU schools and so on, they're becoming a smaller and smaller market for graduate students and future faculty and future administrators. And more and more, the impact of higher ed, I think, is at the community college level and at the state school level. And, you know, we, we need to make sure that we're doing all we can for all those institutions. That's beautiful. So I'm, I'm just going to say that for all of our members, I would highly encourage the people that listen to this podcast, and I know we're going to share this with your members so they can see what's upcoming in the conference, to really check out NCCI if you haven't attended. Because I, I've been to a, a number of these conferences, and it's always surprised me, even though I've been practicing this work, how much I'm even learning in, in in the space that where I think I know something and I, and I get to see somebody practicing or in, sometimes you walk away with one or two nuggets, you can go back and, and make a phenomenal change. So let's um, let's wrap this up. And we'll make sure, by the way, that people uh, can get access uh, to how they register. Why don't you just tell people right now, if, if they're interested to learn more, where should they go, Carol? So they should go to our website and... Um and the website is? <laughs> it is uh, ncci-cu.org. Um, if you do a Google search for NCCI, you'll probably find some other organizations, but um, ncci-cu.org. And the CU is continue. What does CU stand for? 
You know, that's a question I don't know the okay. answer to. Okay, <laughs> all right. It's not an acronym for a university. Might be see you at the conference. See yes. you. At, oh, good. There you go. That good, was good. Good comeback, Brent. All right. So let's um to wrap this up. I just want to give you both a chance to just share one thing that you're excited about uh, upcoming at this conference that that you know you are anticipating you're going to be coming to. Anything that you want to. Share Carol or Brent that really gets you, you know, excited to say, I'm going to be there and participate. That's new and different for you. I can start out, you know, what I'm looking forward to, to getting it an, a chance to see, you know, how things have progressed and, and meet some colleagues that, that I have and some of the newer people. But by the same token, there are a number of people who are in the founders group that are coming to this, some of whom I haven't really seen for a while. So I'm also very much looking forward to that kind of a reunion as well. So that's that, that. You're gonna be sharing a beer at the uh, at the bar. Absolutely. Looking back, at, looking back. You remember when? Absolutely. What about you, Carol? I uh, there's so many things I'm looking forward to. Um, it is our 20th anniversary, so to celebrate the great work that's been done over these past 20 years. But it's an opportunity for us to look forward. And I think the thing I most look forward to at, at the conference every year is meeting people one-on-one. -on -one. Mm. We have um, opportunities for people to have dinner together. We call them dine-arounds. There are so many opportunities to really connect with people and build your network. And so I look forward to, to growing my network again this year. Fantastic. Well, listen, I want to thank the two of you uh, for your dedication to this work. Because what, you know, th this is one of those areas where, the the needles move by seeing that there are people who are dedicated the way you, the two of you are to continuing to improve, right? To recognize that this is a lifelong learning endeavor that we're in uh, and learning how to speak a language, learning how to talk differently or converse in a more, in a more impactful way. Uh, and, and I'm thrilled, Brent, that this is, this is our first opportunity to, to meet face to face. And I've, I've known about you for so many years. Um, and Carol, your energy for this work is, is so obvious. So I'm looking forward to being there with you. And I encourage everybody to go to the NCCI website. And if you have an opportunity, especially if you're in this area in Colorado, uh, to show up there. So thank you to both of you, and we look forward to seeing you at the conference. Thank you for hosting, Howard. You're welcome. Thank see, you. See you in Colorado. See you in Colorado.